Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome on the Tennis Podcast today on a day when the results have gone fairly straightforwardly for most of the big names. Roger Federer found his gear and beat Dan Evans straightforwardly. Johanna Conta was in great form. Serena Williams was back. But we're going to do something a little differently today and particularly throwing it forward to some of the, the fantastic storylines that we still have at the US Open here. Somebody we've had on the show before and somebody who's always a real treat to have on is Chris Clary from the New York Times. Hello, Chris. Hey, David, how are you? Uh, it's lovely to have you with us, as it always is. Um, I've been trying to get you on all week because one after another, your columns keep perking my interest. <laughs> whether it, whether it's talking about the the umpire Damien Steiner, who we, we covered briefly last night in last night's show about how he's been fired, um, to all the American stories. Let's let's start with the the positives, the the exciting news stories. I mean, you've been around long enough to see. 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds come through before, but I know you, when we were talking yesterday, you said your your concentration was Coco Golf. What what do you make of what you're seeing? Yeah, it's Coco and Serena, to be honest, but yeah, it's definitely uh, taken over um, the general sports fans' interest in our country. If you're watching ESPN, and we're about to start our National Football League season over here, um, baseball season's in full swing, uh, there's room for Coco. Yeah. on these broadcasts. These are general sports broadcasts. That's pretty unusual if you're not a real major, major, major star in tennis like a, like a Serena or a, not even a Federer. So it's taking a different dimension here. And uh, my editors, for example, I can tell you are very interested in, in her story and not just the sports editors. I think she just hits a lot of buttons in our society and she has a certain freshness about her and authenticity and a charisma on the court that I think we can all see. And at the same time, uh, you have to ask yourself questions, as you say, having covered the sports so long. And are we doing too much projecting? Are we too far into the future? It's much of our business these days is about what's going to happen, not what just happened. So I'm trying to resist that as a journalist and look at it in, in kind of in the round and um, use that experience of having covered the Capriottis and having seen players come along through the years who uh, had difficulty with the sudden attention and absorbing it, had some physical problems. We've seen more of that lately than probably the psychological aspect with people like Laura Robson, CC Bellis in our country having great success in their mid-teens and then having problems breaking down. Even Bianca Andreescu this year, wonderful player, obviously a little bit older. Her body's been breaking down on her too. She could still do very well here, but 
I think those things are all factors you got to take into account and try to tone down your writing, tone down your coverage. But boy, she has something. She has the X factor, I think. She's a real born competitor, and you can just sense the crowd when they watch her in these stadiums, be it at Wimbledon or be it here. There's something going on that's pretty rare in tennis. What it leads to, we'll see, David. Yeah, it's it's a very good point you make. I mean, we're a, we're a show that we do love to project. We love to do it in a hopefully in a fun way. But I am aware of that. Of the and, and that's not to say that, that what we say is going to make that much difference. But as a as a whole, it, it's so easy to almost sort of want to outdo each other for for making a big statement about what somebody might achieve and what they might do. You know, a soundbite and and this is. A child we're talking about do you do you sense i mean you as you say you you've covered capriati you've covered the others what do you think of what you see as a as a human being in terms of how she's dealing with this situation well you know the question i get as a sports writer more than any other question is what's blank really like you know what's roger federer really like or what's serena williams really like or what's and back in the day you know what's monica sellis really like i'm not sure i know what my neighbor is really like so you have to really be careful, I think, in this business to try to jump to too many conclusions yeah. about that. What I can see on the outside is I see there seems to be a really careful plan in place. I think Team 8, uh, which is started by Federer and Tony Godsick, which has a, a young agent, uh, Alessandro, working with um, Coco now, there seems to be an intelligent approach to this, a long-term approach. I talk to her parents. I hear a lot of good things. Um, I hear them talking about uh, the importance of her having a family base, I hear about her father, Corey, telling me that he studied all the prodigies, looked at their progressions and looked at their own uh, practice schedules when he could, tried to understand a way to avoid injuries. So there's a lot of really smart thinking that's gone on. Now, if she goes out tomorrow night in Arthur Ashe Stadium at 7 p.m. and plays, which she's quite capable of doing, having watched her, plays a great match, somehow beats Naomi Osaka, the world number one and defending champion, then this thing's going to take on a whole different dimension. And then it's going to require a lot of really, really strong personalities and a lot of really, really uh, strong plans to resist the temptation to let it get carried away with itself. So that's, I know in a way I'm just hoping that they've laid a strong platform here because this thing has a chance to really go galloping into the horizon pretty fast. How would you compare it in terms of interest levels to those players that you've seen in the past? I remember when Jennifer Capriati came along, obviously when the Williams sisters came along, but then I even think back 10 years ago when Melanie Udan was was the player being talked about. Obviously she was a little older, but in, in terms of the way the, the appetite for Coco Mania, as it was branded during Wimbledon, I mean, do you, do you see this this level of... Is it, is it comparable to anything? I think there's two things that are kind of countercurrents today right now. I think I'd say one is tennis in our society, in the U.S. at least, is not as big as it was. Um, I think when um, in the 80s and 90s, it still had a, a higher you know place in the hierarchy of sports in America. And when Serena and Venus came along, that story was so compelling. And they were laying on the platform of Everett and Navratilova and all those players. So that was ready to be really taken to a high level. Now, the other side of it is that we're in a social media age where things get amplified very quickly, and it's very easy when somebody breaks out of a sport to suddenly have the situation where the whole society can get behind it in a hurry, quickly, and react. So those two things are kind of working against each other. But I, I think this, this is probably comparable to Serena and Venus in the early stages in terms of the level of interest. And I was out there on the court you know, today, court five and the doubles, and just she's already on a first-name basis with the crowd. You know, it's Coco, 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 Coco. 
Katie McNally is pretty good too, but Coco has this ability, and I think the fact that you know Serena and Venus are still active, still very much in the in the picture in terms of their tennis, and Coco comes along, it's a logical connection to make. Coco's talked about it, the fact she beat Venus at Wimbledon. So all those things play together. So it, I think it has very much the potential to be that kind of a story. But then again, that word potential is used a little too often in yeah. my taste, in my in my opinion, in this in sports in general. And I imagine another cautionary tale that we were reminded of last night is that of Taylor Townsend, who was a prodigious junior, who is an African-American teenager that came along and now is 23, still outside the world's top 100. It's just a wonderfully exciting game. We were talking about it last night. And I was talking last night how I'd wish I'd gone to the press conference yesterday. I, I, I've since watched it back, 15 minutes of Taylor Townsend talking about the journey that she's been on. And it sounds like she's had some pretty dark times over the last six years or so. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough sport because obviously when things are going well, all the sponsors and the agents and the uh, waiting for the next big thing are there for you when they sense that's going to be your situation. Things go the other direction. There's always somebody else in line somewhere else, and it can get pretty quiet in a hurry. It's probably that quiet time that's the hardest time after all the commotion. But I guess in my case, I think about things like, you know, we talk about Capriati all the time, definitely some tough moments there, but ultimately that was a success story. I mean, she won her Grand Slam. She got the number one. She worked through her problems. I don't know where she's at now, and I don't want to speculate, but I think that should be seen really as, in many cases, a triumph of the human spirit. In tennis terms, I look at someone like Nicole Vitasova, for example, a very similar age to uh, Coco when she came along, and the talent was there. Amazing athlete, great ball striker, powerful serve and all those things. And then personal issues, injuries, other things came along, and she never fulfilled the potential that she clearly had. So that maybe that's, a, that's a probably a better example, somebody gets comparable there. So tennis has offered you up both those examples over the years, and then there are players like Steffi Graf or Monica Sellis who break through in 13, 14, 15 years old, and, and they make it, or Chrissy Everett was a huge story back in the print media day, you know, here in 1974 with the U.S. Open when she uh, got to the semifinals at age 16 and went on to win 18 Grand Slam titles. So it can go both ways. I just think it's very important to let them try to experience these things in real time and not constantly pepper them with questions about what are you going to do next? What's it all mean? She's 15. Yeah. And... On the subject of Serena Williams, and to a lesser extent Venus, but thinking that Serena's in this tournament, they've been doing this for 20 years. And, you know, we've talked, I think, over the years as a a media, not picking out individuals, I know I've done it in the early stages about the other interests they had in life. And and we often talked about it almost as a negative. And, you know, whether they're fully focused on tennis, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, yet here they are, 20 years later, still performing still able to be massively relevant within the sport and i i would think that that is part of the thinking as well isn't it in terms of you know i mean coco goff for instance she's got to be who she is not just somebody's template yeah i think it's a very smart comment david i agree with you 100 percent. and i think you know serena and venus uh as countercurrent as they were at the time i think they've set a new uh standard i think they've shattered a lot of preconceptions that existed in tennis before I think they will help the Coco Goffs and the next generations maybe get a fairer shake along the way and give people, have people give them a little bit more leeway in terms of how they approach this process. You know, there's not, they're not any givens. There's lots of ways you can do it, and I think Serena and Venus have proven that. And um, you better believe that a lot of these young Americans in particular that are coming up have looked at that family, the mm-hmm. Williams family, and taken those lessons to heart. 
We're going to do a bit of projection now because Serena Williams has been chasing 24 for a long time now. Three Grand Slam finals have come and gone and she hasn't won them. Do you... I saw her today. She was fantastic against Carolina Mohova from what I saw. Didn't commentate on the whole match, but I thought she, she really looked like she'd hit her stride and she was ready now to, to play her tennis. Whether it's good enough, we'll see. But do you, do you sense that she's in any way in a better place and a better position to get to that number 24 now than she perhaps was at some of these other opportunities? You know, I think so. Um, I'm not going to project and say she'll do it, but I like where she's at right now for a couple of reasons. If she's truly healthy and if nothing else comes along in the tournament, because that could easily happen to her at this stage of her career where the knee problem pops up again or her back goes out. But what I'm seeing on the court, even though she lost the first set against Katie McNally the other night and looked a little bit tight, is that She's moving so well, looks fitter, and she's able, I think, to uh, calm herself down now, get her composure going, but also she, I think she knows she has the base physically that she didn't have earlier in this season, and maybe even last year as well. Um, and I think when she's moving well and gets in position to make those contact points, wow, the ball just flies off her racket still, and she's serving very well too, hitting some high percentages, um, and not so high percentage, hitting you know high, uh, high speed serves, getting me able to kind of generate it when she wants it with the leg drive now. So I see a lot of good things, but honestly, David, I don't think we're going to know how she's going to do until we get to a final again. That's been her stumbling block. I think she's okay. She played some great semis this last two years since her comeback, and she gets into that final match, and it all kind of accumulates and hits her again. And her opponents, I think, recognize some vulnerability, and they play better. So I think that conversation almost has to be had in the middle of whatever final we're seeing her play. Yeah, because and that's the thing, isn't it? It's the moment. It's part of part of it is the opponent too. Um, but it's, we've got a fan fascinating week or so ahead, haven't we? Yeah, because she looks so good at Wimbledon. I think we all, in the way she played in, um, against Stritseva in the, in the semifinal and the way she played here at the U.S. Open heading into that final last year, things looked like they were in place for her again. And then it didn't, it didn't work for her in the final. So I, I'm just going to wait and see. But I think she's come a long way from where she's been back in April and May with her game, the French Open. She wasn't in shape, looked very shaky. And now we're seeing a player who looks a lot more like Serena Williams. Yeah, we are. Um, th- what do you think of the game at the moment uh, on the women's side generally? I mean, to my mind, I think it's in a really exciting place because you've got, I mean, you've got people that are 20 years, 20 plus years separated and they're competing on the same court. I mean, Venus Williams is nearly three times the age of Coco Golf. Um, it. Does it need a Coco Golf though, at the moment, in order to to pick up the mantle that eventually Serena is going to leave? Because, as you say, the sport is. I, I was surprised actually when I when I heard how down the pecking order tennis is on on the in the scheme of things here in the states. I, I was I was reading. I think it was Chris Fowler from from ESPN, who's who does college football as his other big job and and he i remember i heard a podcast with him and he was explaining just how big college football is and how far down the i mean he loves tennis he he knows it's 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 got its own ecosystem but in the grand scheme of things i, I didn't realize how far down the peck and order tennis is no i think it is it's it's definitely lost ground and um you know what's sustaining it is uh is its core audience which is aging not rapidly, just like all of us, David, aging year by year. <laughs> and I think that's the way it's going here. Yep. And so you look around at some tournaments and you'll see a, you know, an affluent but, but older population of people. And I think the TV audiences are not that big. 
and have diminished since the golden years of the 80s and the 90s. So that is a concern. And someone like Coco, new personality with the kind of game that she has, it translates across uh, you know, demographics and across um, to a new generation of, of sports fans. For sure it's important. Does it have to be her? No. But I think you have to have personalities like that people can latch onto and say, okay, I have an interest here. I'm going to watch this person no matter who she's playing. And if she's playing Serena Williams or Naomi Osaka, who broke through here last year because of all that happened in this tournament last year with Serena and all that, all the better. I think women's tennis is in a fascinating place right now, but I'm inside the game just like you are. So I'm loving the fact that you're seeing all these new talents emerging. I'm loving the fact we're seeing all-court tennis come back in a big way with players like Barty and Andrescu and what you saw yesterday with Taylor Townsend in that match against Halep. For me, that's all, all good stuff. But to break through to the... The casual fan of sports, you need transcendent personalities, and you need what was lacking so often in the Serena Williams era, and that's rivalries. People want to watch a personality, but above all, they want to see a personality against somebody else they can recognize and go, ooh, I want to watch Coco Goff play Bianca Andreescu the 20th time, and what a great rivalry it is. And that's why the men's game has been so transcendent. Not a whole lot of depth, maybe in terms of people winning these titles down the, down the pathway, but those four guys, the Murrays, the Federers, the Dolls, Djokovic's playing off each other for 10 years yeah. in epic matches. I mean, those that's, are that's got great value. And women's game could need some of that. Incredible rivalries, really, on the men's side. How, how do you see that race at the moment you've got? I mean, it's, it, is, it couldn't be more beautiful, could it? 20 for Federer, 18 for Nadal, 16 for Djokovic. He's the youngest of the three, so he's coming up on the rails. Nadal, you, you sense, has got at least a couple of French Opens that he could still win. Uh, how do you feel we'll end up? It's fascinating. I think the odds are in Novak's favor in some ways, from my, in my point of view, if he stays healthy to, uh, to get up there with Roger by the end. And who knows what Rafa can do. But I think the X factor is if somebody emerges who can suddenly go, boom, you aren't winning anymore. It's us, the new generation, that's going to do it. That's the X factor. When that happens, as it will happen. And if that other person or other two players can come in, and I don't see it being Felix Ogelia seem tomorrow, but player, a player like that can come in and suddenly say, hey guys, your time isn't, isn't here anymore. <laughs> and that stops all the momentum. That gets fascinating. Because then you get that intra, intergenerational rivalry yeah. going on, which is a wonderful thing in tennis. This, um, this Djokovic shoulder issue that he's had, I mean, we're, we're, we're due to see him tonight as we speak to you. Uh, we're coming between sessions and it is going to be very interesting. I mean, it was, I watched back the, the press conference Djokovic did. I've read a couple of the lines out from the Serbian journalists as well. It sounds pretty grave, pretty, or at least something that he's pretty anxious about in terms of the context of this particular tournament, this left shoulder uh, issue. That said, we've seen him have issues before and, and once the worry over them has gone and he can play pain-free, he's been... He's been okay, but I mean, I'm going to come back at the end of the show, t- the, of the order of play tonight, because I want to give everybody an update about how he looked, if he did indeed take to the court. But it's, it is a concern for him at the moment, isn't it? Because everything was going so swimmingly. Well, of course it is. And also now, I mean, Novak Djokovic is a smart guy, high level of intelligence. And he also knows now that he played through pain with his elbow uh, two, three years ago, and he shouldn't have. That was a mistake. He's admitted as much. So I think this time, if it happens again, I think he's going to realize he's going to need to address it quickly because he saw how it all worked out the last time when he went into a t- basically a two-year slump and he was not really uh, able to play at his best. And I think he knows that's what's required, one, to compete at the highest level, and two, to stay fresh in his head. So if there is a real problem, 
I don't see him just kind of letting it linger and fight through it. I think he'll try to address it. We, uh, we were, we've been talking, as I said, uh, over the course of the week, trying to figure out a time that you and I could talk. And one of the columns that you, you said you were writing was about Nick Kyrgios and about, well, the things he said, obviously the things he's done, and I guess the way tennis is approaching him. How do you, how do you conclude where we are now? Do you think that tennis is dealing with him in the right way? You know, you look at the actions that have been taken by the ATP and the, some of the fines and then the suspension back in, um, you know, 17 after the incident in Shanghai. Um, there's been some discipline g- coming his way. He's been, he's been dealt with in some fashion. What gets me, David, is this just a pattern of behavior here. If you go into the statutes of the ATP in terms of what major offenses are, one of the things that you can't sanction on is a pattern of behavior. And that is undeniable, in my view, that we're seeing a pattern of bad behavior, disrespectful behavior against the rules. I don't mind if he breaks the codes as much when he breaks the rules. And I, I just don't see any improvement. And I think what happened in Cincinnati really can't happen again. And I seriously start going after umpires to that in that manner, disrupting the matches in that manner. And I think it also alienates fans, even though they're attracted by him as well. So obviously you got to follow the lettering and the wording in the rule book. But for me, I see a pattern here. He retracted his statements about the ATP being pretty corrupt. If there was just an average situation, well, you cut him some slack there. It's not an average situation. He's been spouting off about these things for a long time. It's also part of the pattern. I know they're trying to look at it as a separate incident in terms of their discipline. There are two cases open against him. But the one that's compelling to me is the first case opened after Cincinnati. And one of the ways you can sanction somebody for a major offense is for a pattern of behavior, a pattern of going against the rules. And that is undeniably there. So that's why I lobbied in my column that it's time to suspend him again. I'm not saying it has to be for a year, maybe even six months, but he needs to have a solid sanction here to send the message that such doesn't stand. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we are of a certain age. Um, I, I look around, I went out to that court yesterday and people were just couldn't wait to see him grandstand court you couldn't get on it you could not get a seat and there are I don't know, there, there are people that just think that maybe we should just look at tennis in a different way you know there is trash talking other in other sports the we have sledging in cricket personally i i don't feel like that in terms you know i feel when he what he said to fergus murphy is not on um and i i i'm I, get, I would guess that if you if you didn't sort of challenge him in a public forum, I reckon if you just spoke to him quietly, he would probably admit that, that, that that's mm-hmm. not on. Because I don't think he's a bad human being, personally. Um, but, yeah, I think I think you've got to be careful that you don't end up treating... He, he complains of double standards. I think you've got to be careful that you don't give him double standards on the other, the other foot because of his level of attraction. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's, there's a lot of resistance to uh, going too far. Everybody can see the appeal that he has. And I'm not saying you should, you know, knock the life out of Nick by any means. And I, I actually would be in favor of allowing rackets to be broken on court as long as there's no danger to anybody in the stands or the officials. It never really bothered me that much. Would I like my kids to do it? No. But there can there's some things in tennis that could use, I think, loosening. But in terms of abusing officials, in terms of attacking the integrity of the officials and the integrity of the game totally disrupting your opponents which happens an awful lot in his matches those are things I think that need to be improved upon and I don't see him learning the lesson through fines I don't see him learning the lesson through negative media coverage I think it requires the one thing that really has teeth in this game and that's being suspended from the sport for a little while if it, you know, I think he was pretty good after what happened in Shanghai for a while but I've seen deterioration and slippage in the last uh, few months 
and I just don't think it's it's a good look for the sport not to send a strong signal now. Mm. It's going to be interesting to see how he handles the rest of this U.S. Open because he's got a heck of an opportunity here. He does. No, he does. As I wrote the other day, I mean, this is an extreme example, but it's very possible that Nick could go very deep in the U.S. Open, get to the final, maybe even in, in a crazy situation with his level of ability, win the U.S. Open, and then go to the Labor Cup in two weeks and be part of a, the whole effort there and be front and center and then be suspended for three months, as he, in my view, rightfully should be. Is that a good look for the sport? I don't think so. So if that's not a good look for the sport, what, what do you do? I mean, do you, do, you, do you have to announce now that he's suspended or afterwards? Or I know why they are doing it quickly, because these things take time. You have to get both sides of the story, and they didn't want to distract Nick in the middle of the U.S. Open, but it's a bad look. Cincinnati's going to be far in the rearview mirror by the time this finally gets adjudicated. It's a good chance they won't go in Nick's favor, but it's going to seem like it's after the fact. Mm. And it already does. Here we are in the U.S. Open. He could be front and center in these coming days with this thing hanging over his head. And in my view, they should have expedited it and acted on it more quickly. I understand why they didn't do it, but I think it might have been a mistake. Final points. Um, Damien Steiner, you you broke the story of the fact that he had been fired from his role at the ATP, uh, an experienced umpire, an umpire who'd reached the top, the pinnacle by refereeing, umpiring the Wimbledon men's singles final 13-12 in the fifth set between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic going Djokovic's way. I mean, it doesn't really get any better than that from a from an umpiring perspective and within weeks he, he he's lost his job. Um, it was as a result of a, a, a list of interviews he did, I believe, in, in Argentina. Um, where do you stand on that? Look, I mean... It's almost Shakespearean, the whole thing, huh? It's like a literary device. I mean, you get this opportunity you've earned from 20 years of work. I thought he did a super job in that match. It was a tremendous match. He was in no way a a distraction. I thought he was only professional and added value. I know a lot of the players really respect him. And yet, by virtue of having that opportunity, that laid the, uh, the seeds of his own sort of destruction in a way. That's too strong a word, but you know what I mean in terms of his own... Uh, loss of his job with the ATP and if it hadn't happened if he hadn't been that good the opportunity to have those interviews and to have that exposure never would have happened and I could see in Argentina knowing how passionate that country is and how patriotic they are it's like one of ours is in the chair in the chair for this massive match and boy isn't this great and you know in a way he's probably just being polite answering all these requests but he's also a veteran and I know that the rules are clear on this and I think he knows after the Carlos Ramos situation last year with Serena when Carlos didn't give a single interview and was told he couldn't and reminded that he couldn't. Empiring world's a small one. So Damian Steiner should have known better, and he should have known better not to do 20-plus interviews and talk about things like potential rule changes in the sport and how Roger or Novak might have been feeling. Now the question comes, should that rule be as draconian as it is? The other question is, should he have been given a warning? I can't answer that. I don't know all the material they had or all the information. It does seem pretty harsh that he should have been punished in some way, for sure. But ultimately, my reaction, and I was criticized for this after I wrote the column, was that I felt it was almost more sad than anything else. Yeah, it is sad. I mean, look, I don't care whether you feel it's too harsh or too lenient. It is sad. I mean, it's a shame because the sport loses a really, really good umpire. He loses his livelihood, or at least a big part of it, and has to do something else. It it is a shame that 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 happened one way or the other. It is, but ultimately impartiality is is really 
the most important thing yeah. for a chair umpire. And by going out there in public, maybe he thought, you know, this is Argentina, it's in Spanish, no one's going to see this stuff, I'm just doing my, my home colleagues a favor. It's not the way the world works anymore. It all gets around. And you cannot affect your impression of impartiality. It's so mm-hmm. important. And I think that's why they ended up firing him, because they felt like it was irreparably damaged. Yeah. Chris, as per usual... It's been lovely. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We haven't been blown away yet, David. It's blown pretty hard out here. Yeah, I mean, halfway through our chat here, we're sitting outside in the media garden. Suddenly, this gust of wind has come. We're holding on to things on our our table here. It's going to make things very interesting for tonight's uh, evening session. Madison Keys against uh, Sofia Kennan, then Novak Djokovic on the schedule against uh, Dennis Kudler. I'm going to come back on at the end of all of that and let you know what's going on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Well, several hours later, one o'clock in the morning, to be precise, local time, I find myself on the bus going back from Flushing Meadows. It's about a 20-minute, 30-minute drive back into Manhattan, where uh, where we stay for those few short hours before uh, uh, day six will start at the US Open. Um, and we've had the evening session, and Novak Djokovic did indeed play. I have to say it was a, a bit in doubt for a while. He... Uh, he was due to practice at five o'clock, uh, at least that's what we understood. He didn't show. The same again at six o'clock, no sign. And then eventually he arrived just after seven o'clock, uh, the evening session starting around then. Djokovic against Dennis Goodler with second match on, and it was a pretty gentle warm-up. Um, Djokovic actually exchanged some words with somebody at the back of the court, somebody who was watching through the fence at the back, and 
difficult to, to know exactly what was said, but I, I think somebody riled Djokovic up. Um, and actually, after he'd beaten Dennis Cudler in straight sets, he, he did say that uh, that person doesn't know, but he, he really helped me. Um, and it was noticeable out on the court that Djokovic was, was a lot more demonstrative, a lot more animated, a lot more aggressive with his body language. He, he, was, he looked irritated at times, but boy, did he play well. Uh, I, I, I felt like he was hitting the ball pretty much full on. Um, he was moving exceptionally well. Uh, he didn't have any obvious treatment when he was on court, unlike a couple of nights ago. So um, those are good signs from a Novak Djokovic perspective. What was interesting, though, is he re- pretty much refused to talk about the condition. He arrived onto the court and did the pre-match interview in the tunnel with Tom Rinaldi of ESPN, who who asked him initially... Um, We've, we've obviously seen all the stuff with the shoulder a couple of nights ago. How, how are you now? And uh, Djokovic said, I don't want to talk about that now. I'll talk about that afterwards. And uh, to be fair to Tom, he followed up and, and he said, yeah, but how are you? And uh, how is the shoulder? And, he, and Novak just said, I'm here. Let's play. And he walked onto the court. And uh, yeah, like I say, played pretty well no no obvious signs of discomfort but he will now play Stan Wawrinka in the last 16 and I would say as I mentioned to Chris earlier that that's not a great draw to have in the fourth round a guy who's beaten him twice by bulldozing him off the courts um, if Djokovic is anything short of, of full fitness if Djokovic is a full fit fully fit and playing his best tennis even Vavrinka isn't going to beat him because Djokovic is simply a better player overall um, but there are question marks so we'll find out won't we in a couple of days time we also had a, an even more fascinating encounter on the Louis Armstrong court where Daniel Medvedev fifth seed took on Feliciano Lopez I, I didn't see all of what went on in this match um, but towards the end of the first set the the crowd were absolutely behind Feliciano Lopez and for some reason they really took against Daniel Medvedev I'm not 100% sure what went on what is what he was doing but I, I do know that he was pictured showing them the finger on the side of his face uh, the other side of the umpire he, he showed them the middle finger I mean you know I, I do find it quite funny I probably shouldn't it, it, in, in one way I mean it's you could you could say it's a poor behaviour, but I quite like the fact that he's prepared to just give the crowd some back because they were giving him a really hard time. Um, and then the match was brilliant. Lopez was superb. It was uh, it was a four set victory of third set tiebreak, incidentally. Um, that, that Lopez had chances in, but Medvedev eventually won it in four sets. At the end, he was interviewed on the court, and I've seen this sort of thing before from Medvedev. He, once he gets the red mist, he there's no going back. There's no, I mean, and I like I've said on the past on the tennis, tennis podcast, my dealings with Daniel Medvedev is that he's a charming guy off the court when he's calm and away from the the, the heat of battle. But they they pushed him over the edge, or he pushed himself over the edge, and when he was interviewed. He said to the crowd, and he was lapping it up. They were booing him from all sides. And he said, you know what, guys? This booing, your energy that you're giving me right now is what made me win the match. I was cramping yesterday. I was in a terrible way. And because of you, right here, all this booing 
this is what made me win the match. And then, uh, and then he invited the, the interviewer to ask him another question just so that he could say, you know, I think all this, what you're doing right now is giving me enough energy to win my next five matches. <laughs> uh, it was, it, I mean, and then, and then my favorite bit was when the interviewer then gave him the tennis balls to hit into the crowd, <laughs> which, is, uh, which was quite a, a funny contrast given the, uh, the atmosphere that was going on at the time. So anyway, Daniel Medvedev is through to the fourth round of uh, the US Open and he could face Djokovic in the quarterfinals if Djokovic can beat Vavrinka. Um, I mentioned Roger Federer. He was in fantastic form earlier today. Thrashed Dan Evans, quite honestly. Joe Conta was in great form. Serena Williams was played her best match of the week so far. Well, I suppose Sharapova win was, was maybe even better, but, but she really looked good, did... Uh, did Serena Williams and um, yeah we look ahead to tomorrow we've got a full order of play um, and the evening session just is box office it's wonderful on paper it's Coco Goff against Naomi Osaka followed by Nick Kyrgios against Andre Rublev I think we're in for a spectacular night of entertainment um, Catherine will be back with me as well we, we thank you for listening to us here on the Tennis Podcast. We hope you're enjoying the dailies. If you are, please leave us uh, a review on iTunes if you could and, uh, and tell as many people as you can um, just so that we can continue growing the audience, which is uh, what we're always trying to do um, and hopefully well, give everybody as much of an enjoyable show as we can. We're executive produced by TennisBalls.com. We are mascotted by Rio with a Y, the lovely dog. Um, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and we will be back tomorrow with another tennis podcast. Oh look, my bus has nearly arrived. Sleep beckons, finally. See you tomorrow. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 